Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Brantley Fry, VP of Health Equity and Community Engagement at PacHealth. Her work focuses on social determinants of health and informing healthcare policy. She also has a law degree from Vermont Law School with over 20 years experience providing leadership, management, and legal counsel to individuals, corporations, local governments, and federal agencies. PacHealth has served as a leader in patient engagement since 2013, and their model provides a human-to-human coaching experience that gets to the root causes of health outcomes. As an organization, PacHealth prides itself on implementing innovative strategies to help its members overcome health barriers. She also wrapped up time in the U.S. Senate, serving as a state director for Senator Doug Jones of Alabama. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you, Rishi. Yeah, and you know, I'd just like to start out with asking about how you're doing, how your family's doing. You know, during COVID, so many things are topsy-turvy. I'd love to just do a general check-in. Yeah, happy to do that. You're right. Things are very topsy-turvy, to say the least. We feel really fortunate. We've been among the lucky ones who have had the flexibility to work from home. And we certainly recognize that that is not true for everyone. And so we really have tried to be very grateful and cognizant of that ability because it hasn't impacted our day-to-day work lives. Of course, it has impacted our our social life and and our day-to-day activities, but that seems somewhat minor price to pay in order to stay safe and to keep others safe. And like I said, we're just really thankful that we have the the flexibility to also work from home. Yeah, it totally makes sense. It definitely a time to give thanks for all that we have at the moment, especially those of us that are that are healthy and our families are healthy. You know, your, your personal background is just so interesting given that you had a legal background and a career in law, and now you're doing health. And, and these two domains, law and medicine, are so daunting, and yet you've been able to kind of navigate both in, in a way. And then to add on top of that, politics. <laughs> and so I feel like you've, you've kind of meandered through some of the most challenging landscapes ever. I'm just curious about your background. Like, What got you kind of initially started and interested in healthcare? Yeah. So as you said, I have a law degree. I practiced environmental law for some years. And it seems like such an obvious connection for me to pivot from environment to healthcare because you know, I, I don't think that we are protecting the environment just for the views. Obviously, the views are nice and we want to be able to get out in nature. But if we don't have a healthy environment, we don't have healthy people. And so to me, it was a very easy pivot from one piece to the next, from the environmental space into the healthcare space. They're also very heavily regulated spaces. And so having that law degree certainly has helped me pivot into the healthcare space and looking at larger policy issues. So tell me then about PAC Health and digital coaching. For those that may not know, how does it work and, and what is that phrase, digital health coaching? What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so so it's a, as you said, it's a digital health coaching platform and we serve our members. We call our patients members. And so we serve our members in between their doctor's visits is one way to think of it. We serve as almost a concierge service so that we're helping them address their healthcare goals in between visits to their healthcare providers. And so we really think of ourselves as part of the larger healthcare team. 
we are able to walk them through a particular journey depending on whatever conditions they may have. We serve about 25 chronic conditions. And as you probably know, so many of these members, if they have one chronic condition, they also have two or three others. It's very rare that someone just has a single chronic condition. And so we work across those conditions to help them identify healthy eating habits, exercise habits, help them with medication adherence so that they're not missing medication. If they have issues that relate to social determinants of health, our coaches get to know them in a way that they're able to address those as well. So those issues range from food insecurity to transportation challenges, lack of social support, some of the other elements that cause challenges for people to to meet their healthcare goals. Not meeting those healthcare goals is a, is a big determinant and a big driver in whether their outcomes are, are positive. So as they're meeting those goals, we're able to increase positive health outcomes. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of, of one of your members. And, I, and I, that phrase is an interesting one, and I'll come to it in a moment. But what do you do to make a member feel inspired to trust the advice you're getting? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, eat better, you know, exercise more, whatever whatever the mantra may be. But but to then do it is, is obviously a whole other ball of wax. So how do you actually get people to do it? And, and what does that health coach do or say that's so effective? Because, gosh, you know, I'm just thinking about my kids and my parents. And what should I be saying and doing differently to, to kind of inspire the changes that you're, you're obviously seeing in your members? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And trust is a huge component, as you said. It can't just be this random person calling to say, hey, you need to do this. Then it becomes less of an accountability partner and more just somebody who's nagging you about something you may or may not want to do. So it's very important that our health advisors develop trust early on. And one of the ways we do that is we actually assign a particular health advisor to a particular member. So the members have the same health advisor throughout their journey. And of course, having that one-on-one relationship really helps in developing the trust relationship as well. That's one of the things that makes PAC a little bit unique in that we have both this digital element as well as the human-to-human interaction. And we found that that combination allows us to, to scale so that our health advisors are able to work with a number of members and really make a larger impact from a macro level, but also at the individual level, because they have these touch points that are both human to human. And and what I mean by that is we have this omni-channel approach. So we're able to reach our members through phone, through text, through email. We even have an app. It's, It's interesting because not a lot of our members actually use the app, which was a little bit surprising because we had been told, you know, we were really pushed to create the app. And then it turns out that's not one of the features that our members like the best. So we're able to really meet the members where they are. And part of that is, you know, establishing the relationship between the member and the health advisor. And the health advisor knows what their preferences are in terms of how they want to communicate. If they want a single call each week or if they want a couple of calls and, and maybe more text, we can, we can adjust that. And the digital platform allows us to be nimble in that way. That's really interesting. And it kind of gets to my, my question then around the phrase member. And, you know, other words that one might use are patient or customer or client, and, and you've opted for member. And I'm just curious what the, and, and I know it was a very thoughtful choice. So I'm just curious what the, what the thought and logic was around that phrasing and, and whether you believe like maybe we should be using that word more, more widely across the healthcare space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really a lot of times people don't identify as a patient unless they're 
in the healthcare environment unless they're in the hospital or in the doctor's office. And so that's one reason that we moved away from that term. Also, the word member has a certain level of ownership to it so that it is driven by that individual as opposed to the other way around. They're really helping to determine their trajectory and how their healthcare is is handled and managed. And so we're able to accomplish these journeys, and it is somewhat self-directed. What I mean by that is the health advisors work with the members to identify a particular goal, a longer-term goal, and then over the course of the journey, they do they have what we call tiny steps to achieve that larger goal. So it is self-directed with the assistance of the health advisor that serves, as I said before, like an accountability partner, not just as somebody who's going to just ping you with a reminder, but it's, it is a caring relationship. There's, there's an empathy there that's established. So this trust and empathy really support the overall achievement of the goals. So I guess then going back to that core thesis that like they're the ones driving the, the behavior change and, and at the crux of it, behavior change obviously drives 90% of, of healthcare spending. And you kind of define it interestingly at the outset, like, like you guys are kind of filling in the space in between doctor's visits. And as a clinician, I can tell you that I, I feel like the majority of the work is, is what groups like PacHealth are doing. I mean, that's where all the real work is happening. And, and at best, maybe I'm serving as a checkpoint, <laughs> if that. And so it, it's interesting because I think still in people's brain, they think of hospitals as the core of where they get their health care. And then maybe stuff like what you're describing as a supplement. But in fact, I feel like it's the opposite. And, and at the core of what, what's really happening, the difficult work, you know, the quitting smoking, the losing weight, you know, all these kinds of hard, hard things, these are, these are daily things that, that sometimes don't get glamorized, but like that's where the real work is in, in medicine. Sure. And I'm wondering whether you feel like that's a realization that, that, that people are coming to, in a sense. Like maybe all the glamour stuff that happens in the hospital is, is actually maybe not the bulk of what America needs. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak to the glamorization of it one way or the other, but I, de- I definitely think that there's a lot of attention being paid to it, if for no other reason just than the dollars and cents and the cost associated with the patients ending up in the ER rather than taking steps in between visits or ending up having, you know, surgical needs where they could have made changes earlier on and, and avoided surgery altogether. So it, it really does come down to kind of how we approach our daily lives. And, and I do think that to your point, you know, people don't necessarily think that they're in the health system if they're not at the doctor or in the hospital. But I keep coming to back to this, this piece that I think of it as just kind of compounding interest. If we're making small changes that are going to support our health, kind of healthy lifestyle, those small changes really add up over time. And so that's another thing that we've really focused on with the tiny steps is, is making it manageable for people. Because I think when you, when you talk about quitting smoking or you talk about losing a certain number of pounds, that can be really daunting for people. And so how do you break that into smaller goals so that you not only can see results quickly, right? Because you're meeting these smaller objectives, but also so that you can measure it, right? You can see kind of that progress over time. And so I think that that's one of the big pieces and and kind of, like you said, in, in the space in between 
if that's becoming more prevalent, I hope it is because I do think it's a way that we can drive down healthcare costs overall. And of course, just as a, as a country, as a society, this is one of the biggest issues we face. I mean, you talk about the number of people going into bankruptcy because they can't pay their healthcare bills. It's a problem, not only to those who can't pay their bills, but to all of us who it's a pressure on our economy that doesn't have to be there. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and it's interesting. I, I was just thinking as you're speaking about the fact that that phrase health coaching, you know, that, that word coaching that we often think of coaching in terms of like, maybe you go to a gym and you have a coach and it's normalized to get a trainer or a coach in other domains like physical training, right? Yeah. And you don't go there, like you wouldn't necessarily get a physical coach when you've broken your leg. Like you might call that person a physical therapist. Like there's a different word for it. And yet with health coaching, I think still the mentality is, well, I go and get a health coach when I have diabetes to help me with my meds, or I get a health coach when I need to lose weight. And I'm just curious if there's any inroads that you've seen where health coaching is actually done purely preventatively in the sense of like normalizing the idea of a health coach for, let's say, a cohort of high school students and saying like, hey, eating well is just a normal part of being an adult. And as you transition into adulthood, we're going to get you a health coach to teach you how to cook and eat with, you know, whole foods and things like that. So is, is that something that you're seeing, like in terms of the, the normalization of health coaching before you have an illness? Or is it still mostly kind of when you have an illness, you get a health coach and, and you kind of remedy that? I think it's probably, at the, as we sit here today, I think it's probably more in the, the folks who have had a diagnosis, right? But the preventative element is, is huge. I mean, that's, that's critical. And so we often talk about kind of the, the top of the pyramid and the middle of the pyramid. So the people at the top of the pyramid who have the most acute needs, those are the people who are, are in the hospital or under the care of their physician and more frequent intervals. Whereas the middle of the pyramid, kind of the, the pre-acute need population, that's a place where even though, like you said, they may have been diagnosed already and have a condition, but they are set on a different trajectory if if you have the intervention of a coach. So there's most definitely a preventative element to, to the coaching piece. But in terms of kind of thinking about catching younger adults and catching healthy populations for coaching, I, I think that's I think that's really important. I don't think we're there quite yet though. That makes sense. And in another sort of domain, you know, that I think a lot about is, of course, you know, telemedicine and and the role of health coaching, specifically given that now there's such a, an openness to telemedicine. Have you seen an acceleration in sort of the adoption of health coaching over the last year? And, and if so, like what what sort of things have you have you noticed? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll use Pack Health as as the example, right? I mean, we've doubled in size over the last year. The pressure that is placed on the the healthcare system with COVID has definitely accelerated our growth because we're able to reach patients. We already had a platform in existence. We were able to reach patients where they were on a remote basis. And so it's really kind of, it's really moved the adoption curve. It forced more early adoption, whereas we we wouldn't have had that otherwise as it relates to, to coaching in general. And I think about, of course, we're based in Birmingham, Alabama, and we have clients in all 50 states or members in all 50 states. But when you think about the South as a region, we're a late adopter. I mean, as a region, we, we operate in that late adoption space. 
but it's been interesting to see the growth come out. I, I always try to look for silver linings, and that's definitely been a silver lining in COVID because telemedicine needed to be accelerated before before the pandemic happened. I just remember my time in the Senate, one of the first events that we did with Senator Jones after he was elected and, and in office we were meeting with some of the healthcare leaders in, in our state talking about telemedicine and, and the opportunities for telemedicine, particularly as it relates to rural healthcare. Alabama's not unique, although I think we do have probably more acute problems, but we're not unique in losing rural hospitals. And so the idea that now we have telemedicine in place, we've We've kind of tested the models, the proof of concepts. All of those things have happened at a very rapid pace with COVID. But now that they've happened, I don't think we're going to put that toothpaste back in the tube. People have have appreciated the, the ability to see a doctor without having to sit in a waiting room. They've appreciated the, the accessibility of a coach who can meet them where they are and understand their needs. And then, of course, if, if their needs require something to be elevated to their physician, that's something we do at PAC Health. If it, if it needs to be clinically elevated, we do that. And so it really, it provides this kind of safety net in many respects that members want and need. And, and so I, I, you know, I hate to say that COVID has been beneficial, but certainly a silver lining in the healthcare space is that it's accelerated the adoption of telemedicine in, in all forms, not just in coaching. You know, an interesting thing I've always wondered about, and I feel like you're so uniquely poised to hopefully be able to answer this, given your background, is technology moves so quickly and our lawmakers are oftentimes from a different era. They grew up in a different time. Oftentimes, even those that have grown up in, in the current kind of technological boom don't have the time to research all the nuances, right? Like that's not what they do day to day. And as you pointed out, like, you know, are often involved in reelection campaigns and there's other things that are, that are taking their bandwidth. How is it that we can create a system whereby they can draft laws on topics that that truly, like the scope of what they would need to know is just so deep. And yet they're asked to write laws on these topics and, and have that depth of knowledge. And I get that they have teams, I, I understand that. But I'm just curious about like what your thoughts are on how challenging this must be as a, a government framework. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it is. It's incredibly challenging. And it's trying to, to move a, a giant ship in a quick way. And that's, it's hard to do, but I will say, and you, and you nailed it. Having a good staff is the key. I was really fortunate to have worked with some incredibly bright people who were knowledgeable about their various subject matter when we were in the Senate. And so particularly Katie Campbell, who was, who was our healthcare legislative assistant. She was also the deputy legislative director she knows healthcare policy backwards, forwards, upside, inside, out, all of it. She just knows it. And so I think having staffers who are open not only to their experts in their field, but also open to learning and, and hearing from the private sector, hearing about innovation, hearing where the, the, the pain points are, whether it's from a regulatory or a legislative standpoint, being willing to, to fight those Fight, so to speak, so that the those pain points can be removed. I think about again going back to telehealth and just the reimbursement 
CMS making changes through the pandemic. I think they initially said that some of those changes were going to be temporary, but again, I don't see them going back. And so having the reimbursement models reflect the current availability of services is, to me, that's kind of a a low-hanging fruit. And I think having people at CMS who are looking at innovation, of course, they do have an office of innovation, so that they're making the changes that need to be made that that reflect the market so that that people are, are not getting hung up on whether or not they can be reimbursed for a service that's much needed. I hope that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. It definitely does. And, and I think having that, that clear communication where what you're describing is almost like the idealized politician then is able to quickly extract the information they need and hopefully can facilitate an openness and trust to be able to kind of pull out the, the parts that they need from a really great team and surround themselves with, with great folks like, like yourself that have that deep knowledge and expertise. I then I would love to then transition into the final question, which is, knowledge gaps. You have so many to pick from and so many pillars of expertise. And as a teaching company, we love to kind of impart a little bit of wisdom or knowledge upon our audience. What are some common gaps that you see that you're like, gosh, if there's one thing your listeners ought to know, it would be this thing. What would you say or suggest that we learn about? Yeah, I think, you know, health equity has been such a a buzz phrase coming out of the pandemic. It was a problem that existed long before covid But certainly COVID, like it has for many other issues, has just shined a bright light on equity. And so one of the things that that I would really like to see is, is the ability for the healthcare system and for clinicians to understand how to talk to patients about social determinants of health, how to engage them in a way that doesn't impart any judgment, but that is open to helping them find solutions and recognizing that not everyone is similarly situated, whether it's, again, kind of, I, I think of social supports as as one piece. I mean, there, there are some people who have large family or friends that can support them throughout their journey. And then there are other people who are going through a diagnosis who maybe don't have that level of support. I mean, that's that's a really basic thing that I think a lot of people take for granted. But also, I mean, you could go down the list. That's true of transportation. That's true of food security. I mean, if you think about all of those social determinants, education, the built environment, all of those pieces. So having the framework to have honest and caring conversations with patients about those challenges, I think it's critical. Well, that's a perfect, perfect note to end on. I, I think that that empathy and compassion piece is needed now more than ever. So, so if there's one one point, I think that that makes a lot of sense to to focus on. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to to me and our audience. Obviously, as I said a few times, your your background is so remarkable, and taking the time to share some of that wisdom is fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I, I always talk about having kind of a non-linear and, and non-traditional career. And I'm really thankful that it's landed me in some cool places like Pack Health. So thanks again for your time. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Well, I'm Risha Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. 
You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>